Good morning. We're going to be reading from Exodus 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must, see, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all of the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not eat any of it until morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house, sorry, on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then to verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of Israel, sorry, of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for the clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they had asked for, what they had asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, 
there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of the livestock, both flocks and herds. And with the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Thanks, Leah. Are there any legal assistants in the room? Legal assistant? No? It's unfortunate because today is International Legal Assistance Day. So, <laughs> thank you for your service. Oh, and it happens to be National Solitude Day, Spinach Day, Live Long and Prosper Day, and I kid you not, make up your own holiday day. So later tonight, in honor of the sacred occasion, I'm going to sit in my basement alone eating spinach and watching Star Trek, and I'm going to call it Ricky Needs to Get a Life Day. <laughs> Whenever they come on the radio and they tell you what day it is, I'm always like, says who? Like, was the Queen of England, God rest her soul, eating spinach on March the 26th, 20 years ago, and said, golly gee, this is the best day to eat spinach ever, so I'm going to make it spinach day. I actually get like just a tiny bit miffed when all these holidays come forward because holiday comes from the English holy day. And most of the holidays in the Bible are commanded by God himself because they were special times when he revealed himself in a special way. And so he told the people, you need to keep a festival to remember that's why in our passage, this is to be month number one for the Israelites. Why? Because the Passover is the dawning of a new creation. It's the moment when God reveals something that he has not yet revealed about himself. And that's that God is a deliverer. Now, Savior and churchy things have become so synonymous that doesn't seem very radical to us. But in this time gods tended to be the gatekeepers of the status quo. They tended to be the type, of the type of thing that blessed who was already in power. In fact, many of those who held ultimate power referred to themselves as gods. They were just one more thing in the world that kept you down. But for centuries, for millennia since the Exodus, people have sang songs, they have written slogans, they have meditated upon this day because it was the moment when they realized that the ultimate creator of the universe had his eyes on the people who were oppressed. He cared for those who were trampled under the wheels of tyranny. He noticed the poor. God is a deliverer. And today, all we're going to do is we're going to explore what it means for God to be a deliverer. We're going to explore our need for deliverance, the mechanisms of deliverance, and what our role in that deliverance is. So, again, there seems to be a problem with the world if God needs to intervene and help people out. So, what, what do we need to be delivered from? Well, in classic theology, there's a trinity of evil. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. And all are on display in this passage about Passover. For 15 years, I've been meditating on a poem. It goes a little bit something like this. I pushed a button and elected him to office. He pushed the button and he dropped the bomb. 
you push a button and can watch it on your television. Those losers didn't last for long. I'm sick of hearing about the haves and the have-nots. Have some personal accountability. The biggest problem with the way that we've been doing things is the more we let you have, the less that I'll be keeping for me. Well, I used to stand for something. Now I'm on my hands and knees. Traded in my God for this one. He signs his name with a capital G. Those beautiful, majestic words flowed from the pen of none other than Trent Reznor of the band Nine Inch Nails. And Mr. Reznor, who is not a pious person at all, is riffing on a deep biblical theme. There's an unholy alliance of worldly wealth, military might, and political power that come together in such a way that those at the top of those systems tend to start acting like, and sometimes even explicitly talking like, they're gods. Maybe even God with a capital G. And Pharaoh, who we meet in the story, isn't even named. And I think that's intentional. I'm sure the writers knew the name of this Pharaoh. But it's because Pharaoh is an archetype. He stands as a reminder of this tendency that we have when wealth and might and power come together to act like we're the creators of the universe. There have been many who have lived in the spirit of Pharaoh since he's been in his grave a long time. And even Israel, later in our story, will be judged by Yahweh, their God, for becoming like Egypt when they have wealth and might and power. Now, the Passover is one of the most uncomfortable moments in the Old Testament. It looks like God is going around and murdering some innocent children. And I haven't found a way to wriggle myself out from under how uncomfortable this is. And I think I'm maybe not even supposed to yet. It's something that I can say you just honestly need to pray and wrestle with God about. But that being said, there are a few hints in the text that there's something going on. There's the way it's presented is important. And one of the things that it's presented as is it's presented as Yahweh going scorched earth. He's really showing his power. In fact, in Exodus 11.6, it says, crying like this has never been heard and will never be heard again. So it's like a one-time display of power. And I think it's there so that any other person who walks in the wealth and might and power of Pharaoh can look back and meditate on the scorched earth of Egypt. And the soundtrack that I'd recommend to them while they meditate on it comes from Johnny Cash. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. There are limits to evil in this world. Yahweh still judges the earth. Now, an uncomfortable thing that we need to reconcile for most of us in this room is we are far more likely to be on the side of Pharaoh and Egypt than we are to be on the side of Israel and Moses. I don't mean that literally. I mean that metaphorically. Because Pharaoh has been good to us, hasn't he? We can be deceived into believing that we have this comfort and security that we have because of the wealth, the might, and the power of our nation. But the Bible doesn't let us go there. The Bible says over and over again, do not put your trust in princes. Nations rise and nations fall like the tide. A gentle reminder, the soil we're sitting on right now is not Canada. 
Canada is a made-up name for an invisible border that one day will be moved. There's only one God who gets to sign his name with a capital G, and it ain't Trudeau, right? It ain't Biden. It ain't Trump. It ain't Harper. It ain't Putin. It ain't Jinping. There is one throne over all of creation, and it's not in Ottawa. It's not in D.C. It's not in Moscow, and it's not in Beijing. His name is Yahweh, the Lord. And heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool. And with Jesus, he started, he inaugurated a kingdom which will never end, whose borders will never be moved. And he promises one day to deliver us once and for all from the cacophonous rising and falling of the nations. And the exodus, the exodus is the writing of the check. It's the first fruits of that promise. That one day we will be delivered from the world, not the earth, but the sinful systems that human beings make and put their hope in. Second, we're released, delivered from the devil. Now, one of the problems with the way that we've been doing things in the world right now is that we tend to think we can see what the issues are. It's one of the reasons that a lot of Christians I talk to, it sometimes bugs me a little bit. They seem to be more interested in their politics than they are in their faith. And it's Because we can be deceived into believing that we can see what the problem is. Like if we just get this loser out of office, or if we just change this policy, or if our laws were just better, or if people were just more educated, then everything would be eating ice cream with unicorns for the rest of time. But the Bible doesn't let us go there. In Exodus 12, verse 12, there's a really important little note. Yahweh says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. So the Passover is Yahweh bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 teaches us that these false gods are often demonic powers. That's not very modern. It's not very tolerant. It's what the Bible teaches, which means that the problems facing the world, the things that are wrong, are not reducible to the realm of what we see. Behind the veil of the visible, there are unseen powers moving in unseen realms that are part of why things are broken in the world. And if we keep our action against evil only in the realm of the visible, we will ultimately always fail. Now, we could talk forever about what all of that means, but for our purposes today, one of the things that we just need to remember is that prayer, soaking in Scripture, spiritual disciplines, these things are non-negotiable when it comes to our work in the battle against evil because there are forces at play that Jesus has conquered and that Jesus is conquering but that we can't see. So we got to deal with that as well, just as Jesus did on the cross and just as Yahweh did at the Passover. Third, we need to be delivered from our flesh. Now, it's really important to notice that for millennia after this event, the Jewish people do not call this festival the festival of the babies dying or the festival of the killing of the firstborn. They call it Passover. Passover. 
That's important because it means that in their consciousness, the miracle of this night was not the judgment brought on Egypt, but the mercy given to Israel. You may have noticed in the passage, there's this whole business about this lamb that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense because God doesn't need them to put blood on their doorposts to tell who's Israelite and who's Egyptian. It seems like something else is going on. In fact, it seems like the Israelites are in just as much danger as the Egyptians on Passover night. Again, this is really key because one of the things that people, angry atheists in particular, will say is that the Old Testament God is a genocidal racist maniac, right? That he just murders other people groups just because he doesn't like them. He likes the Israelites, he doesn't like the Egyptians, so he hurts the Egyptians. And that's not true. This is about sin and not skin color. This is about evil and not ethnicity. The Israelites are under judgment for sin just as much as the Egyptians are. And both are offered a substitute. They're offered a way forward through that judgment. We all have a personal propensity towards what is evil. We're bent in on ourselves, as Augustine used to say. And any solution for the world's problems has to deal with the world, the systems, has to deal with the spiritual forces, but also has to find a way forward for the personal evil that lives inside the heart of each and every person. And that's what God offers on Passover night. We'll get into how in just a moment. So what's the mechanism for deliverance? How, how does God bring deliverance about in the world? It's a single word, judgment. That is not a swear word like our culture says it is. God's judgment is a good and holy and righteous thing that we are called to pray for and to beg for, to ask God to bring about. And Dave had a whole bunch to say on this last week, so I really encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of the plagues. But there's one detail in our story that I think heightens our understanding of God's judgment. And you know I love to teach you fancy, useless words, so... Here's one for you. Lex talionis. Say it with me. Lex talionis. Right. I, Latin's a dead language, so nobody knows what our pronunciation was like, so way to go. It's not the name of a DC Comics supervillain, nor is it the, name, the proper name of a dinosaur. It just means law of retribution. In the Bible, it shows up in Exodus as an eye for an eye. Which again, to modern people, were like, that's barbaric, that's awful. In ancient times, that was a huge step forward because it was saying justice needs to be proportionate. If someone gives you a black eye, you can't kill them. Right? I'm sorry. I know you guys are really excited to get your murderous vengeance on today. And as horrible as it is, we are supposed to see Passover night as Lex Talionis. At the beginning of the Exodus, we're told that the Egyptians were throwing Israelite baby boys into the Nile. Yahweh says in Exodus 4.22 that Israel is his firstborn son. So the sin of Egypt has to do with sons, firstborn sons. So the punishment of Egypt is going to have to do with sons, firstborn sons. An eye for an eye. This is often thought of as a, like, unchristian idea, right? That it almost sounds like karma. But it is 
a very biblical idea. It comes up in many moments. It's put best by Obadiah in Obadiah 15 when he writes, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. I have it confirmed in an interview that this was Justin Timberlake's inspiration for what goes around, goes around, goes around, comes back around. But it's not karma. There's a difference. In biblical thinking, judgment is dealt out by a person and not a force, which means that we are not doomed, not destined for every bad thing we've ever done coming back upon our heads. He can show us mercy. Justice and mercy are there in judgment. Now, you can read the story of the Exodus and again think that God just hates Egyptians and loves Israelites. But I would argue that the Exodus is just as much about the salvation of the Egyptians as it is about the salvation of the Israelites. Have you ever been on the Coquihalla, stopped in to get a coffee, and then started going the wrong direction on that highway? Uh, a family member of mine, who I won't name for their shame, uh, did this once. And it is the most maddening thing in the world because you are going 120 kilometers in the wrong direction and there are no exits. There's like one emergency turnaround, like 25 kilometers back. And a lot of people think that God's judgment is kind of like that. Like the highway to hell is just like, you're on it, bud. Sorry. No exits. The highway to hell, it turns out, has plenty of off-ramps. Plenty of exits. All throughout the story of the Exodus, we've got Yahweh saying, if you let my people go, this will stop. Some scholars say that in Exodus 11, Moses is actually presenting the night of the firstborn to Pharaoh, basically saying, if you do this thing with the lamb too, you're going to be safe. Over and over and over again in the story, we have these like big bright neon signs saying, exit one kilometer, U-turn route one kilometer, you can turn around, you can stop. It doesn't have to be this way. See, when God brings judgment, he always brings a warning. It says that in Amos. He doesn't do anything without telling his prophets. And I don't know how that worked out for like Hitler or Stalin or any of the big baddies in history, but there's so many times that I've talked to somebody who wasn't living a Christian life or was away from the faith, and they say to me, you know, I just knew somewhere in the back of my mind that what I was doing was wrong. Or every time I went to grandma's house, she would give me pudding and a lecture or whatever. Somebody showed up on a street corner once and said something random to me. God warns people. He does not delight in judgment. He wants to bring mercy. There are off-ramps on the highway to hell. So take him. (laughs) Heed the sign. Listen to the warnings when you start to see them. Now, there's a real tension there, though, because we've just described justice and mercy. And it often feels like those two things don't fit. But we desire both of them desperately because we're people made in the image of the God who embodies both justice and mercy. In Exodus 34, it tells us he's the Lord, the Lord. He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished, yet he's forgiving into thousands. So how do we reconcile justice and mercy? Well, the biblical answer 
is beautiful and sophisticated and super gross because it's blood. There is no forgiveness for sins without the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9. Now, again, modern people were grossed out by that, right? In the Old Testament, it was literal animal sacrifice. In the New Testament, it's a new covenant brought about by Jesus' blood. But again, this is really sophisticated. Because one of the things that the Bible wants to do is it wants to say that sin is the most serious thing in the world. Like, sin, as we heard last week, literally uncreates the cosmos, To sin is like playing with matches in a dynamite storage facility. And the Bible seems to present it as if you could be out in the middle of the forest with no one around, with no one ever seeing, and you could sin and not get caught, and somehow you would have altered the very fabric of reality. Sin kills. Paul says that. The wages of sin is death. There's no way around it. Unless God makes a way for that sin to be put on someone or something else's head. For that destructive power and energy to be channeled into something so that mercy can be bought for you. I imagine in disciplining children, the animal sacrifice system was probably a great teaching tool. Moms today be like, Jimmy, don't lie. Little Jimmy says, but mommy, why shouldn't I lie? Well, because lying's bad, Jimmy. But mommy, what if I don't get caught? Uh, Jesus sees everything. Don't lie. Ancient Israelite moms be like, oh, Reuben, you want to lie? Hey, why don't you just go, just go get your pet lamb? We're going to go down to the temple, and uh, I'm going to show you what happens to liars. Reuben never lies again. He doesn't sleep either, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Sin destroys. And again, this system is sophisticated and it allows us to keep sin as serious as it really is. You can't just shrug sin off. But God provides a way. Always. And now you might be beginning to understand, if you're new to the faith, why Jesus chose Passover weekend. The same weekend these events happened to go to the cross. Why he sat down at that Passover meal, the one who had been called by his cousin John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And why he picked up that bread, and he picked up that cup, and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and here's a new covenant that I'm going to a new check that I'm going to cash on your behalf. And why in Revelation, it's the one who is like the lamb that is slain, who sits on the throne of all creation. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and mercy were ultimately satisfied. Your worst deeds stopped being your destiny when Jesus breathed his final breath. And for any who are willing to accept that sacrifice... The power of their sin is broken. The power of death will pass over them. So, what about us? God saves us from the world, the devil, and the flesh. 
He saves us through his justice and his mercy, ultimately satisfied in a substitutionary sacrifice. What's our role in all this? Well, the Israelites all through chapter 12, more than anywhere else in Exodus, they're referred to as the Lord's divisions. So I don't like that translation because divisions is always a military term in the Bible. It means hosts or army or battalion. And that's like kind of ironic because they're a bunch of beat down, broken up people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years who are like sleepily wandering out of their houses carrying all this gold as they like trip out of Egypt. Like, it's fun to ask yourself, where was this great and mighty and terrible army on the day that their deliverance was won? Were they lined up on the front lines, armed to the teeth? Were they in basements putting bombs together for guerrilla warfare? Were they out at their parliament buildings picketing with pitchforks? Where were they? They were hiding in their houses hiding behind the doorpost that had the blood of the lamb because God told them to. He said, don't you come out till morning. This is my fight, not yours. I was reminded of the ever-famous Psalm 46, and I was thinking about this, where it says, come and see what the Lord, what Yahweh has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And as I was reading this and thinking about some of my own problems, I felt the Holy Spirit inspire a new translation of be still and know that I am God for me. It went something like this. Sit down. Shut up. I got this. Sit down. Shut up. I've got this. You know, sometimes to people on the outside, obedience to what what God tells us to do is going to look like passivity. Sometimes it will feel like the whole world is burning down around you and the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit will say, sit down, shut up, I got this. My name will be exalted over the nations. My name will be exalted over the earth. This is my fight. There are benefits for you, but I'm the one that's going to win it. And yes, there are other times where he will tell us to get up and fight. There are other times he will tell us to go out and march. But there are times when stillness is the only thing he will ask of us. And it will be the most inconvenient time. Now, if I was an editor who edited novels for like a publishing company, I would cut out like 75% of Exodus 12. Because if you haven't noticed, up until now, this story has been like epic. Like, wasn't there, like, a really cheesy movie with, uh, like, Russell Crowe made about this recently, right? Because they were just like, this Exodus story's epic, man. There's, like, gods fighting and plagues and, like, we've got the CGI now. We can do it. And then all of a sudden, Exodus 12 is like, let me tell you how to cook a lamb. Just slows right down. And Chris Wright, a biblical scholar, said, you know, I can imagine that the Israelites hearing the command to do this would have been like, what? 
We're hundreds of years enslaved. You've just done all these amazing and wonderful things, and you want us to feast? You want us to celebrate the victory before we've tasted the triumph? You want us to sit and feast and speak about your faithfulness when we aren't yet experiencing it? You know, so many aspects of the Christian faith can be kind of like cognitively dissonant. Like, how can we stand here and sing praises when there are people trapped in sex slavery? How can we come up and take of the Lord's table when there are people who don't have enough food? How can we speak and learn about love to our neighbors when there are people dying in warfare? Because he tells us to. And maybe you feel like you're surrounded. Maybe you feel like you're beat down under the thumb of someone and it feels like it's been hundreds of years. Or maybe you're just restless to like fix everything that's wrong with the world. Set the table anyway. Sing the praise anyway. Go home tonight, put your head on your pillow, and go to sleep anyway. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if he's got something that he needs you to do, he's going to let you know. And if he hasn't, the thing you are called to is to praise him in deeds and in word and in action. And sometimes he may ask you to sit down and celebrate even though you have not yet tasted your triumph. That's what the table that Jesus sets when he sets Passover does. It looks forward beyond itself to a time when we will feast on the new creation with him. So we celebrate it not saying everything's all right and peachy, saying that something better is coming down the line. But there is one detail. If God calls us to do things that look like passive or might feel silly, the Passover feast is a feast that is eaten, dressed, and ready to go. Shoes on the feet, belt on the waist, staff in the hand. And whatever God calls us to, even if it is stillness, even if it is silence, even if it is singing in celebration when it feels like there's stuff wrong in the world, we are a people who are called to be ready. Ready for what? Ready to be delivered. Which makes me wonder, if God is a deliverer, if that's a fundamental of his character, that he calls people out of slavery, out of addiction, out of bondage into freedom, are we ready to be delivered? Actually ready. And we're going to say this over and over again in the next few weeks, but the first third of the book of Exodus is about getting the Israelites out of Egypt. The rest of the book of Exodus is about getting Egypt out of the Israelites. Egypt's ways and patterns of being. And many of us ask God to set us free, but somewhere deep inside, we've got little corners of Egypt left in our heart. Got little things that we're, that we're holding out on. Got other places we're putting our trust. I actually begged our administrators to move communion to this week because Jesus took the Passover meal and he applied it to himself. He sat down at that table and he grabbed that bread and he grabbed that cup and he said, this is my body and this is my blood. This is the new covenant. But I think he wants us to see all of these echoes 
every time we come to this table. And the echo I think we need to focus in on as a community today is, are we ready? You know, maybe you're here today and you've not given this Jesus thing a chance. Well, today, maybe coming to this table is you saying, I'm done with Egypt. I'm done with my addiction. I'm done with my bondage. I'm done with my slavery. Jesus set me free. But one of the things is, as we learn from the Israelites, freedom is a lot harder than slavery. Freedom demands much more of us. It makes us bigger. It doesn't shrink us. We have to think. We have to move. We have to love. We have to do all of the things that call us outside of ourselves and into those wild places. You know, maybe you're here today and you believe, but you've not really been living like it for a long time. Not really putting your trust in Jesus. And maybe today's another opportunity to come forward and say, I'm ready. I'm going to get my shoes back on. I'm going to put my belt back on. I'm going to grab my staff. And I'm going to go where you lead me. Or maybe you're here today and you've been faithful. But that gentle voice of the Spirit is saying to you, yeah, but there's more. There's more. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's any number of things. Only you and God may know that. But maybe he's calling you to a deeper freedom today. And maybe getting up and coming to this table can, you, can be you saying, I'm ready. Can be you saying, I'm ready to go. Um, this table is for anyone who's put their trust in Jesus. So if that's you, awesome. And as I said earlier, if that's not you, but you're feeling that call, this is a great first step to take. But I encourage you as you come forward to meditate on this question of whether or not you're ready. Uh, let me pray for us as we prepare to come to the table. God, thank you that you are a deliverer. Thank you that you are the one who, for freedom, has set us free, as the Apostle Paul said. And as we hear that call from you today, that call towards freedom, that call towards deliverance, God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be moving in the hearts of each of us. That today would be a moment where we can plant a flag and say, something really did change. Something really did change. I really did feel God move me further into the freedom he's called me to today. God, we just ask you now to do the work that only you can do as we participate in this ordinance. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. The body given in our place. The body that removes the power of sin and death from us, that allows death to pass over us. The body that represents our ultimate freedom from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It represents the new covenant, my blood given for the forgiveness of sins. It's the assurance of his promises of our freedom. Let's take the cup together.